0: In times of crisis, we often focus on the bad things, the things that are going wrong. But in today's Taiwan Insider, we are going to shine a spotlight on Taiwan's heroes, the people that are helping pull us through this pandemic.
1: That's right. And we'll also introduce you to a man who has recovered from COVID-19 and we'll hear his story. I'm Natalie So.
0: And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's check out the stories on our radar.
2: The Foreign Ministry is demanding an apology from WHO head Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. That's after he accused Taiwan of orchestrating personal attacks against him online, including racial slurs. The Foreign Ministry says the accusation is baseless. President Tsai said in a Facebook post that Taiwan knows what it's like to face discrimination, having been kept out of the WHO for many years. She invited the WHO chief to visit Taiwan. The Taipei Metro has joined other mass public transit systems in requiring all passengers to wear face masks, both on trains and in stations. Those who ignore warnings from Metro staff to put on a mask face fines of up to 15,000 NT dollars, or 500 US dollars. A Taiwanese-Danish startup called Blue Sense Diagnostics has developed a test kit for COVID-19 that gives results in 12 minutes. The kit is now in the clinical trial stage. All 327 people who were on a March 30th China Airlines flight from New York to Taipei have been ordered to go under mandatory home isolation for 14 days. That's after nine passengers on the flight fell ill and tested positive for COVID-19. Though all arrivals in Taiwan must now go into quarantine, passengers on this flight will be more closely monitored by health authorities. And under the radar this week, it's the robotic solutions that students at two high schools have invented to keep their campuses free of COVID-19. Students at the two Tainan area schools have built robots that can move around, check people's temperatures, and spray disinfectant.
1: And now for our words of the week. Andrew, ready to guess?
0: Yes. Trudeau, thank you.
1: Thank I you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, today we're going to say a big thank you to all of those who are involved in the fight against COVID-19. And our guest today, who is a patient who recovered here in Taiwan, has a lot of thanks to the people of Taiwan as well.
0: Excellent words. Yes. <laughs> are you ready for mine?
1: Yes. First. Fl- flank. Flat. Flat. Flat, ah
0: Yes, and of course I think if you've been following COVID-19, the coronavirus You'll know that people have been talking about ways to flatten the curve In other words, you know, to slow down the spread And make it a little easier on our uh, medical workers in the hospitals uh, So they're not flooded with, uh, you know, a bunch Mm. of cases all at once Now, it's interesting, today, Thursday, as we're recording this We heard that Taiwan had just one new case announced (gasps) today That's great news So clearly, I think uh, we've at least flattened the curve. Uh, Is this the beginning of the end of coronavirus?
1: Oh, we sure hope so. Hope
0: so, for sure.
1: Let's put these on the shelf. Did you see all the crowds at tourist hotspots last weekend? Well, it's causing a lot of concern. Let's take a look.
3: Taiwan has been relatively successful in fighting off the new coronavirus, so much so that people felt comfortable leaving their homes for the four-day tomb-sweeping holiday last weekend. Massive crowds gathered at popular vacation hotspots, sparking a reaction on social media. Blindsided by the sudden surge in crowds, the Central Epidemic Command Center sent out a text reminding people to follow social distancing guidelines. Now that the long weekend has ended, officials are calling on people who traveled to any of the busy areas to stay home for 14 days. Authorities have identified 11 of these busy areas. But Health Minister Chen Sizong says that it's hard to define exactly what a busy area is. He says he can only offer a rough definition and ask people to use their best judgment. Sun says employers should allow people to work from home in order to maintain social distance. The CECC is also calling on the public to remain vigilant. Although Taiwan has the capacity to test a large number of people for COVID-19, a large number of cases could overwhelm the medical system. Local authorities have assured the public that areas which saw large crowds over the weekend have already been disinfected.
0: There's gonna be another long
3: weekend in early
0: May, and this time it's gonna be for Labor Day. Now, officials have come up with some new guidelines for crowded places like national parks, theme parks, and even temples. There will be single entrances at places like markets, which can help control the crowds.
1: There will be dividers and fewer seats at food courts and dining areas.
0: They're going to limit parking at parks and scenic areas to around 50%.
1: And they'll send text warnings about crowded areas. So what's it like to have COVID-19? Well, this week I spoke with a patient who recovered from COVID-19. Douglas HaBecker is an American who lives in Taiwan. He's now coronavirus free, but he still wears a mask to keep in line with social distance guidelines. So how did you know that you had COVID-19? Tell us the initial symptoms that you had.
4: Well, um I was sitting in my office uh, about five days after, four or five days after what I later found to be my the uh, route of infection. And uh, I was suddenly, I mean, it was quite sudden. I was suddenly hit by chills, which I think were probably the most uh, pronounced symptom that I experienced, but also just a bit, of a lot of fatigue, just feeling really tired suddenly uh, for no apparent reason. And uh, a bit of a strange headache behind my felt like it was behind my eyeballs that just wouldn't go away. It wasn't very severe, but it just kind of lingered and lingered. And so I think initially the, 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 symptom that really jumped out at me the most was these, were these chills that I was experiencing. And, um, so I would, and, and later as the week progressed, um, as, as the, the week that followed progressed, uh, that I started to develop, uh, what I guess they call night sweats. I would wake up in the middle of the night, Uh, with, I think, a bit of a fever, because I was really sweating. Uh, And then about uh, midweek, in the week that followed, I developed a a slight, just a very slight cough. But that's kind of what got me thinking about the coronavirus, because obviously a cough and a fever are two of the things that are uh, closely associated with this. The one other symptom that I really noticed as well is that, uh, again, later in the week, is my, uh, I did not lose my sense of smell or taste, But it was my uh, taste was really altered. Uh, Food just started tasting really weird uh, and often I completely lost my appetite because everything I ate just it it really just tasted weird. So somehow my, my sense of taste was really altered as well.
1: So then you went to the hospital to get tested. How did you find out it was COVID 19?
4: well i you know when these symptoms just kept going on and on and, and you know the, the the chills and the the night sweats and and the and, a, and then to make things a little bit more alarming i started noticing i was i was coughing up a little bit of blood oh. um which obviously is scary <laughs> yeah. but um at this point i thought um, yeah there 's something wrong here. I need to go to the hospital and so I did go to the hospital um, and I walked into the emergency room and I felt kind of kind of silly actually because I just said uh i don 't feel well I, I want to be tested for this uh you know covid nineteen um, and i didn 't fit the profile actually uh, the doctor said you know you haven 't been out of the you 've been in the, in the country for almost two months um, and uh you know you you don't seem to have you don't seem to fit the profile um however uh he did see some problems with my lungs like there was i don't know how you maybe what they might call a shadow or something on my lungs and uh he said my blood work was wasn't normal so he decided to ask me to stay 2 3 nights for observation and some treatment in a in a private room so that i wouldn't have a chance of infecting anyone with whatever i had um and and so yeah i was there for 2 3 days and it wasn't actually my doctor, the, the, the one that signed in my case, kept quizzing me about, you know, have you, you know, where, where might this have come from? And um, that's when I finally, it popped into my head that um, I just a side thought that uh, a few days before I had started feeling sick, I had actually hosted some friends from Washington State just for a day. Oh. And one of them had complained that uh, on, the, on the evening of that day that they were down here in, in visiting me. They complained that they had chills and that they weren't feeling well. So I sent them a message. I hadn't had any contact with them since. And I said, hey, are you guys okay? And immediately the wife of my friend said, oh, he got sick uh, with this unknown disease. And then she got sick. And then one of their friends that they were traveling with got sick with the chills and, and, and similar symptoms that I had had. Um, Of course, they all seemed to recover fairly quickly, too. Within a few days, they were feeling better. But I told my doctor here in Taiwan this, and immediately the alarm bells went off. And uh, they said, oh, we got to test you for COVID-19.
1: Douglas was treated in negative pressure isolation. He had one of the fastest recoveries of anyone in Taiwan. He was in the hospital for only 19 days and was released after three consecutive negative tests.
0: Now, local authorities work to trace all of Douglas's contacts. They even quarantined a number of people, including all of the people that he works with. Fortunately, he didn't infect anyone else.
4: I really want to emphasize something, and that is, this was a very stressful time, obviously. I just found out I had coronavirus. Um, I'm in the hospital, and through entire, this entire process, I, the people that I interacted with uh, the local officials that had to make these phone calls, uh, I just felt they were so um, understanding. They were very calm. They were very polite. Uh, they didn't put a ton of, you know, they didn't put all this pressure on me. I just, and they were very friendly and and supportive. And I, I, I really can't say enough about that because I I think my guess is that there are other countries where that doesn't happen, right? When the people come in and, and you're being treated almost as a as a criminal, you know, being interrogated that, a but that never yeah, that never happened here. Um, I, I just felt like in fact, even after I came out of the hospital, they had to have, I had to sign off on a document. I felt like we were almost old friends by that time because <laughs> they had it, the interaction had been so positive.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Well, I think Taiwan has done a terrific job of, of you know um, taking care of people and keeping the virus um, contained as much as possible.
4: I just want to add one thing, and I've said this to so many people, I've said this to my doctors um, and my nurses, I've said this to friends while I was sick and after I was sick, but um, I, I really do think speaking as someone who is, has come, you know, had the coronavirus and come back from it, um, I, I really do feel that um, I would rather be here in Taiwan. Uh, if I had to catch the coronavirus, I would have rather caught it here in Taiwan than anywhere else. Um, and uh, Going through this crisis, I would rather be here in Taiwan than anywhere else, quite literally. And many people agree with me on that. So, uh, again, I think Taiwan is doing a marvelous job.
0: Now, fortunately, Douglas and all of his friends have recovered from COVID-19. We'll have the full interview for you on Facebook and YouTube.
1: In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to be talking about some heroes in this pandemic. Mm. Now, the first hero I want to tell you about is the inventor of the N95 mask. The N95 mask. Yes, that's used by medical personnel, and it blocks 95% of very small particles. And it was invented by a Taiwanese-American 30 years ago.
0: Wow, 30 years ago. Yes, Dr.
1: Peter Tsai. And just recently, 3M, the company that makes it, said that they're going to increase production this year. How much are they going to increase production? Two. That's oh my, my question goodness. for
0: you. Oh, it must be a huge number because I know that a, all doctors that. And, and nurses right. wear N95s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say they're going to increase it to 10000000 million.
1: Let's take a look. What? Two billion this year. (laughs) So that's like four times the usual amount. (laughs)
0: Excuse me. (laughs) I was way off. Two billion, that's.
1: That's a good, lot. right? That's yeah. very good, yeah. yeah. So that's great that they're going to do that.
0: There's 7 billion people on the planet.
1: Right. So, so. I think that should be enough, uh, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. But, um, okay. Another very interesting person is Father Giuseppe De Doni. He is an honorary, he's an Italian priest and honorary Taiwan citizen. Oh, wow. He's been here since 1965, and he's been caring and setting up centers for the mentally challenged. And just this past week, he started a fundraising campaign for medical personnel in Italy who don't have enough protective gear now how much did taiwanese donate
0: to italy
1: yes to italy
0: uh through in u.s dollars
1: um in taiwan dollars
0: in taiwan dollars okay wow uh this could be tough i'm gonna say three million dollars
1: okay let's take a look at the answer a hundred and twenty million. <laughs> it's almost four million U.S. dollars. Hey,
0: so I'm close. Three million in, in U.S. dollars. US
1: dollars.
0: <laughs> so i should just be like underguessing everything <laughs> for your enjoyment at home <laughs> okay. so
1: i mean he was so overwhelmed that he stopped he said after 6 days which it only took 6 days to get that much mm. he said stop donating we have enough um, mm-hmm. over 20,000 people donated and in the picture there you saw an 83-year-old woman she still works at the market and she gave a week's salary of 800 nt wow. which is about 27 us dollars amazing so 8 is a lucky number she also gave eight masks Mm-hmm. So, anyways, sweet, yeah, um our last group of heroes are the neighborhood chiefs and staff. Mm-hmm. They've been taking care of the over eighty thousand some people who've been in home quarantine, monitoring them and giving them care packages. How many neighborhood chiefs do we have
0: in Taiwan in Taiwan? Oh, my goodness, okay, wow, uh, I know that there are. Like 300 something townships in Taiwan <laughs> to find Okay. Into.
1: Take a wild guess. Okay.
0: Uh, I'm going to say 2,500.
1: Okay. Let's take a look at the answer. <laughs>
5: <What>?
1: Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of neighborhood chiefs, right? 7,851. That was a care package that uh-huh. um, they bring, the contents of a care package.
0: Okay. Excellent. So they've
1: been doing a lot of work for us. Actually, we can take a look at what life has been like for them and their staff as they look after those in home quarantine.
3: A district office clerk in Kaohsiung, southern Taiwan, checks up on a resident who's under quarantine. Sometimes, she turns on the video function to make sure they're actually in their home. Every day, this clerk has to check up on over 70 people in quarantine. And her work isn't limited to just making phone calls. Some days, she has to hop on her scooter and deliver food and medical supplies. She does her rounds and delivers the goods carrying half a dozen bags over her shoulders. Ever since the coronavirus outbreak began, this clerk's workload has skyrocketed. She's practically on call 24 hours a day. If anything happens to one of the quarantined people that she's monitoring, she gets called in. Sometimes people call complaining about the quality of food or the insufferable boredom. But, as busy as she is, unless you're in quarantine, you'll probably never meet her. She's just one more of Taiwan's unsung heroes in the fight against COVID-19. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, Natalie, Andrew, and I continue to try and maintain social distance. But the truth of the matter is, I really don't need this face mask. In fact, I'm in the studio all alone. However, I do want to talk about face masks for today's hashtag. They're crucial in stopping the spread of COVID-19, and as you might imagine, they're in short supply but high demand. Last week, President Tsai Ing-wen said that Taiwan would be donating 10 million face masks to its allies, the United States, and countries in Europe. She said that it's important to prove that Taiwan not only can help, but is helping. Social media has been flooded with praise for Taiwan. There's even a tweet from EU President Ursula von der Leyen publicly thanking Taiwan for a donation of 5.6 million masks. Political leaders from some countries like Italy and the Czech Republic have shared videos personally thanking Taiwan for its generous donation. The Netherlands has also received a shipment of face masks, and a photo in their thank you post actually revealed a small cool little detail. The face masks that the Netherlands received from Taiwan were made in orange, which is their national color. It's a small little detail, and I think that's pretty cool. The small Pacific island nation of Palau, one of Taiwan's allies, also responded to a donation. One of Palau's top diplomats took to Twitter to say, Palau has been asking the global community for help, and no one responded except Taiwan. In fact, she was so appreciative, she made the tweet not once, but twice. Politicians aren't the only people that have recognized Taiwan's efforts in fending off the coronavirus pandemic. There are also entertainers and business moguls. Who, you ask? Try Barbara Streisand and Bill Gates. Barb tweets that Taiwan, despite being just 100 miles from mainland China with regular flights to and from Wuhan, has successfully staved off the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, Barbara Streisand, people! This is a huge deal. We're talking about the way we were. We're talking about 150 million album sold worldwide. What did Bill Gates say? Well, in an interview with Fox News, he said Taiwan's response to the coronavirus pandemic was exemplary. Check it out for yourself. Well, there are countries like Taiwan who were exemplary, uh,
4: saw the problem and really got the testing, community-wide testing uh, done very well. They prioritized who got tested. And so they won't either have the disease burden or the economic Uh, a fact that other countries will have.
3: That's all I have for this week. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. And Andrew and Natalie, stay away from each other.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this Inside Look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media.
1: Yes, do leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. And thank you again to all of our heroes fighting COVID-19. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So.
0: And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
1: Welcome to Taiwan Today, I'm Natalie So. So what's it like to get COVID-19? Well, recently an American who lives in Taiwan came out and told his story. He was the 50th case in Taiwan. Douglas Habecker grew up in Taiwan and is the co-publisher of Compass magazine, a city guide for the city of Taizong. He is also the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Taizong. As he only recently got released from the hospital, I asked him how he was feeling.
4: Uh, Well, officially, I I, uh, recovered about uh, a little over a week ago, about 10 days ago. Actually, longer than that. Uh, I left the hospital on March 26th, and uh, I've been feeling quite good, actually. In fact, uh, the last week I spent in the hospital, I felt almost normal. Not quite, but almost normal. So, yeah, I'm feeling pretty, pretty good.
1: How did you know that you had COVID-19? Tell us the initial symptoms that you
4: had? Well, um, I was sitting in my office, uh, about five days after four or five days after what I later found to be my, the uh, route of infection. And, uh, I was suddenly, I mean, it was quite sudden. I was suddenly hit by chills, which I think were probably the most, uh, pronounced symptom that I experienced, but also just a bit of, a lot of fatigue, just feeling really tired suddenly, uh, for no apparent reason. And, uh, a bit of a strange headache behind my, felt like it was behind my eyeballs that just wouldn't go away. It wasn't very severe, but it just kind of lingered and lingered. And so I think initially the the, the the symptom that really jumped out at me the most was these, were these chills that I was experiencing. So I would, and, and later as the week progressed, um, as, as the the week that followed progressed, Uh, that I started to develop uh, what I guess they call night sweats. I'd wake up in the middle of the night with, I think, a bit of a fever because I was really sweating. And then about uh, midweek in the week that followed, I developed a a slight, just a very slight cough. But that's kind of what got me thinking about the coronavirus, because obviously a cough and a fever are two of the things that are uh, closely associated with this. The one other symptom that I really noticed as well is that, uh, again, later in the week, is my uh, I did not lose my sense of smell or taste, but my, it was my uh, taste was really altered. Uh, food just started tasting really weird, uh, and often I completely lost my appetite because everything I ate just it, it really just tasted weird. So somehow my my sense of taste was really altered as well.
1: So this sounds like something that's different than what most flus um, or other sicknesses that we have. Uh, it is different, then, right?
4: It is. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, obviously at the time I started feeling sick, I, I didn't initially think I had, you know, anything to do with the one, uh, you know, uh, coronavirus uh, because I just felt like, well, I must be coming down with a flu or, or, or something. And I actually felt after a day of rest, I actually felt good again briefly for about two days. I felt fine. I felt normal. Went out and did a, a hard bike ride. And I thought, well, this must have been some sort of a 24-hour bug that I, I, I conquered. But um, no, it's definitely not like uh, other flus um, because of these rather unusual symptoms. I know a lot of people are talking about this sense of loss of sense of smell and taste, which is a is a kind of now a, a tell for having this uh, for this uh, this kind of this pneumonia. So I think, yeah, there, there are definitely some differences between this and other flus.
1: So then you went to the hospital to get tested. How did you find out it was covid nineteen
4: well i you know when these symptoms just kept going on and on and and you know the, the the chills and the the night sweats and and the and and then to make things a little bit more alarming, I started noticing i was I was coughing up a little bit of blood, oh. um, which obviously is scary not, but yeah. um at this point, I thought um yeah there's something wrong here. I need to go to the hospital." And so I did go to the hospital, um, and I walked into the emergency room, and I felt kind of, kind of silly actually, because I just said, uh, I don't feel well. I, I want to be tested for this uh, you know COVID-19 um, and they didn't initially do that, um, because I think what they do is they have a screening process, or they did at the time, where they give you an x-ray, chest x-ray, and they check other things like uh, blood work, and, and they ask a bunch of questions. Where have you been? Have you traveled recently? Have you come back from overseas? And uh, I didn't fit the profile, actually. Uh, the doctor said, you know, you haven't been out of the, you've been in the, in the country for almost two months, um, and uh, you know, you, you don't seem to have you don't seem to fit the profile. Um, However, uh, he did see some problems with my lungs. Like there was, I don't know how you, maybe what they might call a shadow or something on my lungs. And uh, he said my blood work was, wasn't normal. So he decided, to ask me to stay two, three nights for observation and some treatment in a, in a private room so that I wouldn't have a chance of infecting anyone with whatever I had. And, and so, yeah, I was there for two, three days and it wasn't actually my doctor the 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 one that signed in my case, kept quizzing me about you know have you you know where where might this have come from and that 's when I finally it popped into my head that i just a side thought that uh, a few days before I had f- started feeling sick, I had actually hosted some friends from Washington state just for a day, oh. and one of them had complained that uh, on, the, on the evening of that day that they were down here in, in visiting me, they complained that they had chills and that they weren't feeling well. So I sent them a message. I hadn't had any contact with them since. And I said, hey, are you guys okay? And immediately the wife of my friend said, oh, he got sick with this unknown disease. And then she got sick. And then one of their friends that they were traveling with got sick with the chills and, and, and similar symptoms that I had had. Of course, they all seemed to recover fairly quickly too. Within a few days, they were feeling better. But I told my doctor here in Taiwan this, and immediately the alarm bells went off. And uh, they said, oh, we got to test you for COVID-19. And that's what they did. And after two tests, I came back with what they call a uh, weak positive result for COVID-19, which was enough to confirm that I had this virus.
1: So the first test wasn't conclusive?
4: No, because I, I, you know, and they said, they said it's not, I think if you come back with one weak positive. And they told me the first test actually was a weak positive. I think that they felt that that wasn't quite enough to go on. So they gave me a second test and it mm. came back with the same result. And I, I think that's one great thing about Taiwan is that they're not, once they start testing, they're not shy about testing. They just keep testing to either confirm the positive or the negative result. And that's what they did with me.
1: So once you were confirmed to have COVID-19, what kind of treatment did you receive?
4: It was interesting. Before I even had that second test that that was positive, the uh, Taichung, the, the city government uh, here where I live, uh, immediately responded and and uh, said, you know, we want to move. We ordered the hospital or request the hospital move you into a negative pressure isolation room. And so they did that immediately. There was no hesitation about that. And I noticed that the uh, the, the personnel that were caring for me uh, started coming into the room with the full personal uh, protection equipment. You know, the whole body suit and the mask and everything. And 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 that's when, of course, the alarm bells. You know, I thought, uh oh, okay, here we are. Um, and so the treatment was a combination. Uh, initially, of course, they weren't sure what I had, and they they had started me on antibiotics already. And I know that. You know, a lot of my friends have said, "Well, antibiotics don't treat the virus." But I think it was—they're looking. I've heard about this from other people as well. It's kind of a two-pronged approach because you do have a pneumonia in your chest that's going on at the same time you have that you're infected with this virus, uh, this you know, COVID nineteen. So they were giving me anti-flu medication, which I know is quite common to alleviate the symptoms. As, as it come with a combination of antibiotics? And I. I assume the antibiotics perhaps are to prevent further infection or complication from the pneumonia. And so those were the two. And I, and then of course the medication for my cough, which had never, which was never actually very serious, but they were giving me some of that as well.
1: So then um, how did you feel after the medication? How tell us about the process of this illness?
4: Well, I, after a few days, actually in the hospital, the chills that, that had really been bothering me and the fever, uh, after several days, actually disappeared. Um, I did suffer some eat night fevers when I was in the hospital and um, they gave me something for that. And uh, But after a few days, that even stopped. And the only thing that really remained was uh, a very slight cough. I was still coughing up some blood and uh, this, you know, a little bit of, you know, maybe a little bit of fatigue and of course the loss of appetite. But I think it was about 10 days after I, I was in the hospital that suddenly, it was funny, in in course of one afternoon, my appetite just came back suddenly, and I was eating everything I could get my hands on because, uh, you know, food tasted good again. So that came back eventually, too. So by the time, uh, the treatment, I think, was fairly effective. And of course, I think that COVID-19 is one of those things, there's no cure for it. You just have to Get through it and, and stay you know the, the medications there to help alleviate the symptoms and and then of course, you rest and your body you know develops antibodies against this virus but you know by the my final week in the hospital, it really had come down to a, a very very sporadic cough i mean I, again, I emphasize very occasional it wasn 't bad, and of course then there was a little bit of pressure in my lungs. Uh, because of, I think, the effects of this, this pneumonia. It, although, and I, I say this to everybody, is that I never had a breathing problem. Even taking deep breaths for me was not an issue, for which I'm very thankful, because I know that uh, there have been people with this virus who have been, had severe complications uh, with breathing. That's why we you know, hear a lot about these ventilators. But fortunately, I did not have that problem.
1: So how many days were you in the hospital?
4: Uh, a total, uh, I think it was 19 days I was in the hospital. But it's funny because the last few days, two or three days, actually, I was already cleared. They'd already decided that I was I was fine. But they, they were just waiting for the central government, the, I guess it was the CECC, to sign the document, to actually signature the document and send it down so that the hospital could officially release me from the hospital. So I had to wait an additional two or three days in the hospital while that document was, was finalized and sent down. So yeah, about 19 days.
1: So I read in your Taipei Times article that you had got tested three times, um, and it was mm-hmm. negative three times before they let you out, right?
4: Right, right. That's a government regulation here. and And I think... You know, of course, there's a lot we're learning about this virus around the world as we go along. But I I think, you know, I've had people come to me and say, well, I've heard people in, you know, a few cases where people left the hospital and then they were they seem to get sick again or something. And I, I everything I've read seems to indicate that people, some countries or some cases, people have been released when their symptoms disappeared or. They were only tested perhaps once and allowed to go home yeah. and then of course, perhaps they were not completely uh, fine. they still had the virus. So I think Taiwan has done a wonderful job in that they're very, very careful about this. I had to, the rule here is that you have to get three negative consecutive tests and and so it was funny because they tested me first the first time they I got a negative test, I was happy, but then I got my second negative test. And then I got apprehensive because I thought, uh-oh, what, what if this third test is positive, then we start all over again. <laughs> but, but of course, fortunately that didn't happen in my case, but it shows the thoroughness of the government is they want three negative tests in a row. And then of course it has to go, still go to discussion uh, on the, I think the local and the central level, they have to look at the case and say, well, here's, here are the details. Do we, do we allow this person to go home? Are they officially coronavirus free? And, and so I think it is a very thorough process.
1: And how else did um, officials uh, contact you? I mean, did they uh, ask you about all your contacts over the past month? How did that work?
4: So as soon as that first test came back that said I was a uh, week positive at the beginning, uh, before they even had the second test, they already started contact the, the local government uh, health bureau personnel started calling me and, and saying, okay, we need to go over your contact history over the last two weeks, basically, or, or longer. And so they, in the course of a, a series of phone calls over the next two days, um, they reviewed pretty much everything that I could remember. And of course, I was able to recall quite a bit. I had my calendar book and I was able to look at where I'd met, who I'd met, where I'd gone. Um, and of course, they wanted to follow up with these people. So then they also had to know well, how do, I, how do we reach these people where they live or do they have a phone number or something that we can reach them because they have to follow up. And in some cases, starting with the people I work with, they had to have a mandatory quarantine. Not, not everybody was quarantined. I think it really, they have some sort of gauge for judging who gets quarantined and who doesn't. I think in some cases, people I had had much briefer contact with were followed up with by the government, but then they were simply told you need to monitor your health if there's any any issues, if you see anything, you need to contact us immediately.
1: That is Douglas Habecker. He is Taiwan's 50th COVID-19 patient, and he has recovered. He's also the co-publisher of Compass Magazine, a city guide for Taizong, and the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Taizong. Next week, I'll continue to speak with him about his experience with the new coronavirus. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Natalie Sell.
0: To the RTI time machine. Today's time traveler is
2: John Triest,
0: And the destination,
2: Kaohsiung, the 19th century. For well over a century, a brick building has watched over the entrance of Kaohsiung Harbor. This is the former British consulate at Takao, Takao being an old name for Kaohsiung. It's a reminder of how this port city in southern Taiwan, full of container ships and maritime traffic today, first became involved in international commerce. Kaohsiung was among the imperial Chinese harbors forced open to foreign trade by Western powers after the Second Opium War. After 1860, the newly opened port became a center of sugar exports, while opium and factory-made textiles became the chief imports. Britain, one of the chief forces behind the opening of Kaohsiung, was eager to protect its nationals here and expand trade. And to further these interests, it decided to open up a consulate here. At first, the consulate was based on a boat floating in the harbor, but eventually, a more permanent home was found. From 1879, consuls worked in the brick building we see today and lived in a newly-built residence up in the hills out back. Last week, Lin Shang-Ying, the deputy head of Kaohsiung's Cultural Affairs Bureau, took us on a tour through the consulate's day-to-day operations and the trade that went on in the harbor outside. This week, she's back to take us inside the consulate, where a display of life-size wax figures brings scenes from 19th-century Kaohsiung back to life, In these scenes, we're going to meet some of the people who actually worked in and around this building and get a sense of the consulate's place in Taiwan's history. uh First, we come across a man dressed for an expedition. His reddish hair is swept back and he sports a mustache. When we find him, he's sitting on some craggy rocks and looking with curiosity at a lizard he holds in an outstretched hand. The man is also being watched. From the rocks behind him, two monkeys are looking on. This is Robert Swinhoe, the first British consul here. Swinhoe wouldn't have recognized this place. He left Taiwan in the 1860s before the consulate and its residents were finished. Still, leaving him out would be a bit odd. That's because of the enormous contributions he made to the world's understanding of Taiwan. Suinho's true love was natural science, and during his several years as consul here, he spent his spare time climbing mountains and rowing through swamps, hunting for new specimens to study. Taiwan's birds and butterflies especially were his passion, but he was curious about all of the island's creatures. Ms. Lin says his objects of study included the monkeys that are watching him in this scene, a Taiwanese species called the Formosan macaque. Not that he had to look too hard for those. The high mountain that rises behind the consulate has the nickname Monkey Mountain for a reason. Swinhoe introduced an entire catalogue of Taiwan's endemic species to scientific circles in Britain. In recognition of his work, other naturalists would give his name to many more Taiwanese species. Among the Taiwanese creatures named for Swinhoe are a species of brown frog, a butterfly, and most famously, the beautiful Swinhoe's pheasant.
5: In
2: 1865, a Presbyterian missionary called James Laidlaw Maxwell arrived in Kaohsiung. Taiwan had its fair share of missionaries around during this period. The trade wasn't the only thing that interested Westerners. But Maxwell's preaching is only a part of his place in Taiwan's history. That's because he didn't just convert, he also cured. The Scotsman had a medical background that he used to his advantage in winning people over. In another scene here, we see him examining a patient's eyes as curious onlookers watch. On a table behind him are trays of scissors and an array of flasks and vials. Ms. Lin says that malaria was a common disease in Kaohsiung during those days, but she says records show that eye ailments were one of the conditions Maxwell treated most often. Here in Kaohsiung, Maxwell would go on to help found Taiwan's first Western-style hospital. Not everyone reacted well to Maxwell's unfamiliar treatments, though. During his time in Taiwan, he would travel a bit to the north to what's now Tainan, and there, locals started talking. Rumors began to spread that he would kill people and extract their brains. And amid the uproar this rumor caused, the local authorities forced Maxwell to leave the area. (laughs) Our third scene takes place on November 17, 1868. The situation is tense. A man in a suit and a man in official Chinese robes sit opposite each other at a long table. The man in the suit is Consul John Gibson, who has only been in his position for a few months now. The robed man is Circuit Intendant Zheng Xiande, who's been sent to Taiwan on an important mission. Gibson is not happy. The imperial Chinese authorities have seized a British company's shipment of camphor. This valuable commodity was used in smokeless gunpowder and came primarily from Taiwanese camphor trees. However, the imperial government has a monopoly on camphor, and this shipment violates that monopoly. Meanwhile, other trouble is stirring too. Local resentment against Westerners, especially the missionaries, has flared up, and several churches have been burnt down. As the dispute over camphor and missionaries heats up, conflict is in the air. In the end, Gibson and Zeng fail to reach an agreement, and a British gunboat shells the island's capital at what's now Tainan. This show of force ends the camphor monopoly. Finally, we return to a scene we looked at last week, where a woman in a green Victorian dress stands by her sedan chair before a lively mix of vendors. This woman is Mary Dunnathorne Warren. She is the wife of Pelham Laird Warren, acting consul from 1879 to 1880. Warren's career with the consular service took him and his family around a number of imperial ports. This makes the Warrens an unusual example of a foreign family here in the 19th century. By their time, the consular residence, with its cool arched veranda, had just been finished up in the hills out back. From up in this residence, they would have had wonderful views of the harbor, Where this scene takes place, down on the street in front of the consulate, Mary Warren could go on outings, taking in the sights of the port. Of course, she was a lady of the Victorian era, and in this scene, she's accompanied by a chaperone, the consulate's Philippine-born constable. Mary's story has a tragic ending. During her time in Kaohsiung, she fell ill, and she died early in 1884, She's among the foreigners from this era, buried in the Takao Foreigner's Cemetery. But in this scene, she's back to life again, illustrating life during Kaohsiung's first heyday as an international port.
5: From 1895
2: on, things changed. In the years since the consulate's founding, Japan to the north had learned the lessons of Western imperialism, and Taiwan was its first colonial prize. After a war with Japan, imperial China would be forced to cede the island, and 50 years of Japanese colonial rule began. Meanwhile, factors like silting were bringing stagnation to the port at Kaohsiung. Britain closed its consulate here in 1910, and sold off the property to Japan in 1925. An era of gunboats, sugar, and western privileges in southern Taiwan came to an end. During Japanese rule and after, the consular building would come to house researchers. Meanwhile, the consul's residence up in the hills would become a marine observatory and a weather station before being left empty and laid to waste by a typhoon. Kaohsiung, meanwhile, would grow into a major port and shipbuilding center, with tall buildings and these days, two million people. The city never forgot the earlier stage in its history that first linked it to the world. The old consulate and residence have been carefully restored, and today, as historic sites once more, they take visitors on a journey through time.
0: In today's Taiwan Explain, we're going to try something a little bit different. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about Taiwan's health minister and all of the officials who have done a fantastic job keeping us safe from COVID-19. But today, we want to focus on the everyday heroes.
1: That's great. So we have 60 seconds for you, Andrew. Ready? All
0: right. Yes. All right. Go. We just to thank all of the people on the front lines, the brave nurses and doctors taking care of the sick. Thank you to the scientists and the inventors for coming up with cures and solutions. The factory workers boosting production of surgical masks and supplies. The journalists keeping us informed. The servers and chefs feeding our bellies. The artists feeding our souls, even if it means performing online. The people taking our temperature and spraying our hands. The clerks stocking the shelves and dealing with lines at the pharmacy. The taxi drivers, the bus drivers, and the train drivers shelling us from A to B. The delivery people bringing things to us so that we don't have to leave home. The teachers guiding our children through scary times. The migrant workers far from home taking care of our elderly and infirmed. And most of all, thank you. Thank you for washing your hands, for wearing a mask, and for keeping your spirits up even when the coronavirus gets you down. Thank you for reaching out even as you keep your distance because at the end of the day, We're all in this together.
1: That was wonderful, Andrew. Actually, I gave you a little more time this time. Thank you. It was very important. (laughs) All those heroes
0: deserve it. I didn't want to
1: interrupt you. And uh, thank you for all of you who've been lending a helping hand from us at Taiwan Insider.
0: Have a question or comment about one of our programs at RTI, send us a letter at P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan, or email us at english at rti.org.tw. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. 320 kilohertz we'd love to hear from you